Former ATP player Christian Rood is our guest for this week's Tennis with an Accent podcast. We have uh, Christian Rood uh, joining us uh, from uh, Miami. Welcome, Christian. Thanks for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, Sakeb. So if you were to look back at your career, you are the most successful player to come out of Norway. Uh, with a ra- ranking of 39, you reached one tour final, one, I think, 12 titles on the Challenger Tour. Uh, how do you look back at uh, your career? Uh, I look back uh, with good me- good memories. Uh, of course, you always uh, think you could have done something different to maybe uh, reach a little bit higher. But uh, uh, at the time, tennis was not very popular in Norway and I had a little bit limited resources. So um, taking that into account, I think I, I'm, I'm quite happy with the career I had. No, that's good. You had a lot of solid wins. I mean, you beat the likes of Kafelnikov, Korda, Enquist, Wayne Ferreira. Uh, you have a win over Becker. So let's talk about, you just mentioned Norway. So how was it growing up in Norway? What was the tennis scene like then and has it changed since? Well, I think it's uh, we're still a small country where, uh, where skiing is um, a lot, very more, more popular than tennis. And of course, soccer and all the, all the big sports are popular, but we're only about 5 million people. So we're not going to have uh, plenty of uh, pro tennis players. Uh, and we don't have that tradition like Sweden have after they got Bjorn Borg. But we're trying and we have, uh, we have many good athletes and we have a good system uh, for sports. So I think... Uh, uh, yeah, we're working hard every day to to see if we can get some pros up there. My son is close now, and, uh, and we have some other girls also. So uh, let's hope in a few years that Norway can uh, have players in the Grand Slam tournaments. That's uh, that's the goal, I would say, at the moment. Let's talk about one of the famous matches, at least uh, from my memory. Uh, you played Boris Becker uh, in the '92 Barcelona Olympics, and uh, not many people remember that. But I was, you know, growing up a huge Becker fan, and I remember that match going the distance, and you had your chances. What do you recall from that match and uh, how big a match that was in your career? Uh, I would say it was maybe the turning point of my career. I was, uh, I mean, I had played pro a couple of years and, and I think I was ranked around 300. And uh, it was a lot of discussion in the Norwegian Olympic Committee if they should send me to the Olympics since I they didn't feel I have a chance to to get medal, of course. But, but uh, anyway, they sent me and... Um, when you play on the futures and challenges, you never get the shot at the big guys. So this was my my shot at the top player, and of course I was nervous. But uh, I ended up playing almost five hours, and I was two points away from winning the match. But it made me feel that I uh, had a chance to become a pro. I played close with the top ten, and it increased my confidence, and it made me take the next step uh, for the next couple of years after that match. So it was a big match for me, and it helped my career get started. I would say. What is the difference in the terms of uh, the ball speed, like say an opponent like Becker? Is it like a big difference when you come and you haven't faced that kind of competition or is it more nerves? I think it's more nerves. Of course, Becker had a lot bigger serve than the guys I played on the on the Future and, and Challenger Tour. But uh, I still felt like I had a chance. I was curious about how, how good it was. And I knew that on clay, which was maybe my favorite surfing, surface and Becker's least favorite surface, I, I felt I... Had something to do there, and and okay, even though I lost the match, I was close, and I I played a good match against the top top three guy, and it changed a lot for me. It changed my confidence and made me take the next step uh, up to the top hundred a few years later. So you say clay was your favorite surface? Is it that still the normal surface or the preferred surface for the upcoming juniors and uh, the tennis academies all over Norway? Uh, not really, because we have a we have a short summer. We only play in from middle of May until middle of September. 
normally when I was young, we all had like these carpet uh, surfaces indoors. So you either had slow clay or you had fast carpet. And I obviously my playing style uh, favored uh, the more slower type of play, but uh, the indoor season is long and now we play more hard court. But uh, I think it all depends on what kind of playing style and what kind of uh, uh, person you are. Um, and uh, I would say that in, in Norway now that uh, most of the guys are not typical clay court players. We're trying to develop more aggressive uh, baseline players. Yeah, I'm sure you're also actively involved uh, with your son's career. And uh, if you recall the two eras when you were coming and you made your debut on the tour in 91 and what Casper is trying to do, how are times changed for a tennis player? I know with social media, people are more aware. But as a player, what are the differences or the similarities what you remember and now what he's going through? Well, yeah, the differences in social media, everyone can have a piece of you at an early age. But um, I think the difference, like I said... I learned a lot from when I was playing, so I, I'm try I try to avoid doing the mistakes that I did, and I I think we've done a good job with Casper. You know, the tennis is more physical. We did a lot of physical training from a young age, and not play too much. Also, uh, travel too much at a young age. So I think uh, me and the rest of his team have done a good job with him, uh, getting him where he is at the moment, and. Um, these uh, these things are important because uh, there's so many players out there, so big competition. So you gotta stay injury free. You gotta be fast enough, strong enough, and you have have to have the right technique. And <laughs> a lot of things have to to work out well. So um, uh, coaches and and everyone knows a lot more now than they did 20 years ago. So the tennis has changed a lot, and I'm still learning. I have a lot of good people around me trying to teach me different things and. And learning a little bit every day and trying to pass that on to Casper, I think that's uh, basically what I've been doing the last few years. I mean, yeah, you're right. There's more data, there's more analysis than there was in, I think, not only tennis and any other sport. So you mentioned about the technique. Uh, with the new rackets and the string technology, do you think technique is more important back in uh, your playing days? Or, or this is a, a change that has adversely affected with this era because, uh, you know, you see people hitting amazing passing shots. That wasn't the case. So where does technique come into play? If you have to compare your time yeah. with uh, this new time of Casper and Sitsipas and all these guys who are coming up. Yeah, I think the technique is, is uh, even more important now because you, you're playing shots under ex extreme pressure. And also that's where the fit, uh, physical things come in. Also, you need to be fitter. You need to be more uh, um, moving better and... and um, Everything has to work together, you know. You, you can have the right technique, but also you have the uh, got to have the right fitness or the the movement to do those kind of shots. So, yeah, just look at Djokovic, you know. And I think most of the young guys uh, coming up are, are trying to imitate him or trying to to do the shots that he does. But that's not easy. A lot of things have to work uh, both technically and uh, and physically. So. Uh, yeah, I learn a lot all the time and uh, prevention training, all those kind of things that we didn't do when I was uh, growing up. So the, the data is out there. So you, you, there's so much you can learn and uh, trying to do the right things every day is, and then build the, build for the future. I think uh, that's very important in today's tennis because there's so many young talents out there. And uh, going again back to your playing days of clay court tennis, uh, I know there's a lot of talk. Uh, I'm a fan first and then I try to analyze whatever I've learned. A lot of people say Wimbledon plays slower because the grass is high bouncing what do you think has happened to clay has clay court tennis roland garros and the european thing has, has the clay court tennis been impacted with these uh, 
a new set of tennis strings and balls or is the clay court tennis still the same i think it's pretty much the same you know the strings uh, come into effect a little bit more you can you can hit more uh, more spin on the shots and, and still control the ball you can string the rackets a little bit looser with those new strings and you can get more speed and more spin so a little bit has changed uh, but um, not that much i say i would say the the, the big difference is uh, on the, the physical part they're moving better uh, they're stronger and they can hit um, unbelievable shots under pressure, which uh, you didn't see maybe 25, 30 years ago. And uh, so you have to be ready for that. You have to prepare. You have to do your job in the gym. And <laughs> a lot of things have to be worked on. So it's much more difficult now from when I was playing. But uh, it's also fun. It's more it's motivated to work on all those different parts of the game to, to try to to become a professional player, I would say. And you also played in an era where there were some world-class clay court players like Courier, Bruguera, Mooster, and even uh, later on like Marcelo Rios and Moya. So uh, I still think those guys would be, you know, uh, top clay court players, even though Nadal has raised the bar. Uh, do you see there's much difference, uh, like the, the physicality of that era and this era? You think those guys will still be like uh, top 10 players? On clay? Yeah, I think those, yeah, I think like Moya, those guys you mentioned, they stopped like five, six years ago. They they could still play very good tennis, of course. Uh, so so I think 20, 25 years ago, that's when you start to see the, the big change when Sampras, I guess, you know, the, those guy, guys came up. They uh, ch- took it to a new level, I would say. And it's just been increasing a little bit year by year. But the thing I think is different now that it's a little bit the schedule is a little bit different. So you kind of get to be able to play on all surfaces. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, Muster he played like uh, maybe eighty percent of his tournaments on clay. I mean the the schedule doesn't allow you to play uh, clay the whole year anymore. So uh, if you want to be in the top ten, I think you have to be able to play at least. Uh, well on hardcore also <laughs> you maybe don't have to be an expert on grass but you got to play well on hardcore to to be, to be able to get enough points to stay in the top 10 you cannot only be a clay court player uh, at the moment uh your son obviously we can talk about him i guess that's why you're in miami because uh qualifying starts uh next week uh he had a great debut in uh rio so how has things changed back home for him expectation wise atp is already marketing him as one of the next gen stars and he delivered a big knockout punch. So how is he taking the success and how? what are the expectations now? Well, he's, yeah, like I said, he had a good move a few years weeks ago down in Rio. And I think he's a, he's a calm boy and he has a long-term goal. So I think he's, uh, of, course, of course, enjoying his success at the moment. Uh, we're still working on things to get better every week, but um, of course now to playing futures one year ago, now playing ATP, and he's got a wild card at the Miami thousand in the main draw. So he's looking, of course, uh, forward to that. And um, yeah, I think I think we did a lot of the right things, and we, it's getting paid off now. And uh, hopefully, it can continue, and we can keep on moving uh, upwards in the rankings. So did Casper train primarily in Norway or did he go to academies in US or Spain where a lot of talent comes out of from? Well, he did most of his uh, basic training in Norway. And um, when he was 16 years old, a couple of years ago, we uh, we found a coach in Alicante because I was looking for someone who could do most of the traveling uh, because I think it was, it was about time to let go a little bit so he doesn't have to be with his father every day of the year. 
So, um, so we found a very good Spanish coach called Pedro Rico. And, uh, of course, he does the training both in Norway and Spain. He does, because the coach lives down there, he goes do some weeks there. But uh, we still try to get him in Norway as much as possible. And uh, I think the overall, um, he needs to be happy uh, with the life situation. So I, th- I don't think he can travel and be away from Norway the whole year. So we're trying to to do the, the best mix as possible. We need some weeks in Spain to get the... Uh, good matching but we also need some weeks at home to to be with the family and friends and we we still do good trainings in Norway I think but we don't have a lot of players to choose from but uh, we manage somehow to to make it work yeah also I want to know and maybe our audience would also like to know like guys like Casper and uh, Sitsipas and uh, Taylor Fritz these are like young guys so what is the life of a tennis player I mean I know you said a lot of time parents are involved but uh, how how important of a role is coach and agent? And do most young guys have a big team, or are they just traveling with a one just coach or a trainer? Uh, just throw some light on that. Yeah, I think uh, we have a good manager in Norway. We have a good agent here in, in in IMG also. So we have a very good team around him. And uh, basically, he travels with his uh, coach Pedro. Uh, sometimes we bring a fitness coach uh, on the road also. And if you want to compete with those uh, top 30, top 50 guys, you, you got to try to build a strong team because the competition is hard. And like I said, everything has to work out well to be able to play at the top level. So luckily we have some good sponsors that are back in Casper and we're able to to have this team around him that um, makes it possible for him to do the training where he wants to do and do the traveling and and basically have uh, someone around him all the time so uh, we're very thankful of that and um, we um, i think it's uh, like uh, back to me i mean I, I we have a good relationship and i've been coaching him since young but i also think that uh, when you become uh, 17 18 years old it's it's also good for him not to to have his dad around <laughs> the whole time so I'm trying to let go a little bit and uh, my role now is more doing all the training when he's back in Norway and I'm trying to help with 8 to 10 weeks traveling uh, of the year. So do these, I mean, Casper's super talented and do all these other talented juniors, uh, does school uh, become still part of the training or at some point you have to make a choice if they're turning pro, they have to either drop out of school or how does that play? Well, it's uh, it depends a little bit where where you have your base, maybe, and what kind of a school system you have. Casper, uh, he went to school up until uh, three, four months ago, uh, because um, he had a very good system. They helped him; he could do some homework on the road. But uh, he had these exams that he had to go to, and it was very hard to to do that this year. So, um, for the moment, we the school is on hold. Uh, but um, I think uh, I try to keep him in school as much as possible because I think the social part is also important so he had all his friends in school and when he was back in Norway he wanted to go to school and meet his friends but now with the success he's had the traveling uh, is more intense and everything is more professional so it was a little bit hard to, to mix school with the, with his daily routine routines now the last three four months so uh, yeah, it's individual. I mean, the, they have to choose themselves. But uh, for Casper, school was a little bit important. It was an important part uh, up until uh, three or four months ago. 
So now he's ranked 128, uh, which is his highest ranking, and I'm sure he's going to shoot up more in the rankings. So do you still have a say as part of the team in his schedule? Because, uh, you know, one result in Rio is good. But uh, how do you guys see the plan? Does he still plan to play some challengers, even though his ranking is high enough to get into some main draws? Because uh, coming from challenger tour, you also want to make a balance, I guess, where he doesn't want to lose too many few rounds in a row. So uh, is that the thought process or the higher the ranking you just choose, okay, we are going to go in as many main draws as we can? Well, I think it's going to be a combination. And it's, of course, difficult, as you say. You you want to go for the big tournaments and play with the big guys. But uh, it all depends a little bit how it goes. You know, uh, on a good day, he, he shows us that he can play well on the ATP level. But uh, the challenger level is not bad either. So those matches are also tough. So we will see now the next couple of months. But he, his plan is to play a little bit uh, both. Um, he has some wild cards in Munich he's going to play. And and then uh, hoping to play maybe in Monte Carlo. And then we will see if we can fit in a few challengers also before uh, before the French Open. So a little bit of mix, but uh, the ultimate goal, of course, is to, to crack the top 100 and, and mainly focus uh, on the ATP levels. But uh, he's still young, so we have time. We're not stressing. We we know we're in this for the long run, and um, we'll just see what what happens uh, through the summer. No, he looked really good. I saw uh, the first set against Carino Busta in Rio. He was really looking good. He belonged there. He was hanging it up with them and almost could have won that match, so... No, that was that was a good result. And uh, you mentioned the word sponsor, and uh, which is very key. I think uh, I was at the Hall of Fame, and Murat Safin, in his uh, induction speech, said that he had an anonymous sponsor who, who helped him out, and he left Russia, and then the rest is history. So when you came out on the tour, how good, how valuable is a sponsor? Because tennis is not a cheap sport; it can get expensive going international tournament to tournament. So does the Norway Federation support upcoming players, or how does that work when a junior launches his career? Yeah, I think uh, uh, for Norway, I mean, the federation is helping uh, also in some ways, both with uh, some coaching and, and, and some uh, traveling money. But Norway is a small country and the federation is not, not very rich. So we have to, for us to have the team that we have around, we we are dependent on sponsors. So like I said, luckily we have that and, and they've been supporting Casper the last couple of years. So we're able to... Or he is able to fulfill his dream and, and uh, try on the professional circuit, and, and so far it's going well. So we hope we're in the, we're in it for the long run, and we hope this can continue. And I think most of the players coming up uh, are dependent on sponsors. You have a few federations that has a lot of money, uh, like the federations that have the Grand Slam. Uh, you see those guys are often under some kind of a national team and they have their coaches and their travel expenses covered. But uh, uh, there's very few federations that I know have this kind of money. So um, it's a tough sport to succeed in. And um, I, I talk with all, also the players and most of those other players have something like Safin. You know, they have a have a sponsor that helped them and maybe they have to pay something back in the end. But but uh, it's an expensive sport. The traveling and the coaching costs a lot. So uh, yeah, it's the most international yeah. sport out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So change content. Somehow, <laughs> yeah, somehow they most of them make it work. But I know there's a struggle for for a lot of players also, and especially if you get stuck on the future tour and don't have money for coaching and stuff like that. That's uh, it's, a, it's a tough life. No, exactly. That's why I want to know even for my own 
time as a fan following the sport. For every Safin, there's like hundreds who didn't make it. You know, it's not they didn't try, but it's just a hard sport to succeed at. That's definitely true. So I think it's a lot of uh, discussion about how ATP and ITF can try and help players more to to maybe increase the price money, especially in the futures and the challengers, because uh, it's been uh, almost been the same level for 30, 35 years. So uh, there's a lot of good talent and good players out there that maybe doesn't make the money they deserve because they're working hard. And and if you're not in the top 200, it's hard to make a living from tennis. But um, yeah, we are lucky, and I know a lot of other players also have the sponsors backing them. But uh, it's definitely something the young players need to to be able to to succeed in today's tennis. Okay, I have a couple more questions, and then we can let you go. So, you've been following the talk around uh, Davis Cup uh, formatting. So, you think uh, the rumors that are floating that uh, reducing it to best of three is that the solution in your term to get more engagement for Davis Cup? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Uh, I, I was also thinking about maybe uh, my own thoughts was to maybe um, play Thursday, Friday, Saturday because um, especially if you get that Sunday and you get a five-set match and you're playing a tournament the next week somewhere else, it kind of ruins that tournament sometimes. So that's what are the most concerns for the players that uh, they want to play for their country, but if you play three ties during a year and the, the uh, Davis Cup week and the week after kind of uh, uh, makes it difficult to get the ATP points they need, then um, then maybe they need some changes to be able to uh, not make them miss too many weeks uh, on the regular ATP tour. So I'm welcoming changes and best of three sets could, could of course help and also maybe try to, to move it one day forward if it's possible. How about making it every other year? That probably can also add some life to it yeah i think it's uh, i think that's also a good idea i heard that discussion before and uh, especially to to engage all the top players uh, they would be more uh, interested to play i think because uh, like like you know they have a lot of commitments with sponsors and everything around them and and they want to play enough atp tour tournaments so they are in the top 10 and if you get the four Davis Cup ties, it, it takes a lot on the, on the mind and the body. So that's also a good solution. And I think something should change, but I'm not exactly sure of uh, why, what. But um, yeah, best of three sets, maybe every second year, keep it for five sets. The, the five set thrillers are, of course, fun. So it's it's tough to take that away. But uh, maybe the solution is to play every, every second year. All right, we can conclude with the Indian Wells going on right now. Uh, are you surprised or not surprised at all how marvelous Roger Federer is still playing at 35 and he's again in the semifinals? Uh, does this man surprise you? How well you know him? Uh, yeah, it surprised me. But, uh, well, nothing surprised me really with Federer. But the, the thing that he's 35 and he was injured for six months and he's coming back uh, that strong. Uh, I love it because he's uh, he's my idol and he's my... Uh, my favorite player, but uh, I'm surprised that he's been able to do it, uh, I must say. And uh, I hope he can, can continue and even win more Grand Slams. When I was at the end of my career, I saw him coming up. So I, I hit with him a little bit one time uh, before March many, many years ago. And uh, been following his career, of course, the last 10, 15 years. And it's uh, unbelievable what, is, uh, what he has achieved. All right, so thanks for taking time. I know you're busy. And all the best for you and Casper in Miami. Uh, Thank you. Thanks 
forward to maybe speaking to you again. Thanks very much. All right.